thanksgiving and with thanksgiving we enter your gates we pour out your praise in your presence and in your presence we pour out your praise and the song we sing we sing forevermore oh glory to the father So let's open up as we continue our sermon series on Matthew chapter 5. 
We have a lot of scripture to work through. Uh, scripture that is, you'll see, very lighthearted and easy. That is sarcasm. Um, beginning in verse 31, Matthew chapter 5. This is the word of the Lord. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem. For it is a city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for ye cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, have, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For you will love those who love you. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." Jesus, I pray as we uh, dig into your word, Lord, we, we come beneath your word. Lord, your spirit is here to, to bring us into conformity with your scriptures. Lord, you inspire these words. They are from you. They are a, as powerful as a sword that can just wedge itself into the deepest and darkest, even uh, secret parts of the caverns of our heart. And we pray that you would do so this morning. Lord, I pray that the words I speak will be reflective of you in your heart. And Lord, if anything that I have prepared here is not from you, would you sub my, my preparation with, uh, through your spirit with your words? We love you, Jesus, so much. We pray this in your wonderful and good name. Amen. Amen. So when I was a kid, I used to go to my grandmother's house. Um, she had uh, only one-third of her lungs, and uh, she had lung cancer. They removed a lot of her lungs. I still remember her labored breathing for the years that she was alive. She passed away now some 25 years ago, but we would go often on Friday nights to her house. And uh, my, you know, my brother and I, we would spend the night there. And uh, there's two things that were always on the menu on these weekends. Frozen pizzas, um, Red Baron Supreme, to be specific, and puzzles. Any puzzles enthusiasts here? So we would just put together puzzle after puzzle, maybe a card game here or there, but puzzle, puzzle, puzzle. That's what we would do all weekend, right? And so you know how this works. You have a puzzle, and usually you dump it out. All the pieces are scattered, and you kind of prop up the box in view because the box has what you're actually aiming for, 
right? So you look down in your puzzle pieces, you're like, well, this color is nothing like these colors. Look at the box picture. Oh, okay, that part, that's part of the sky. That goes in this corner. Let's just shove the color pieces in that corner. And you start trying to figure out how the, all the puzzle pieces come together because you know the aim of those pieces. You know when they lock together what the picture will be when you're complete. As we dive into this sermon, I want you to consider your own life as a puzzle. Imagine all of your actions, all the events in your life, all of your motivations, all of your intentions. If you can be reflective for a moment, imagine taking all of those things and imagining they are all little puzzle pieces spread out on a table. And the question is, if all those pieces were locked together, what picture, what image would arise? What is the ultimate aim of your life? What picture is coming together as the days go by? I'm going to argue this morning that as image bearers of God, on the front of our puzzle, uh, metaphorical puzzle box, is exactly the image of God, or should be the image of God. And the pathway to such an image is a daily dying to self and living unto God, by the power of his spirit. That's exactly where our sermon ends, and it brings all of these pieces we will walk through together. It ends with what is to be your ultimate aim, and it takes all those various realities and very human situations that we all go through, and probably all go through with some degree or another. Topics of marriage and divorce and truth-telling and honesty and oath-keeping and retaliation and revenge and how to treat those who are against you. How can we navigate these things and still wind up with the image of God on the front of our puzzle box when all those pieces are locked together? So keep that picture in your mind. We have a lot to work through this morning, and that is the common thread that we want, I want to hold in front of your face is what is the ultimate aim for our life? It is God himself in Christ by the power of his spirit. So let's begin here. This is the word of the Lord, verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So thankfully, these are very easy verses and very lighthearted as we begin. Um, I, I can't actually unpack this. I would take me an hour, right? Because in your mind right now, you probably have a thousand questions ruminating, right? That I simply do not have time to answer. But here is one of the first rules of when you approach this book, you have to remember this is 2,000 years old. This is written to people who were alive in a different part of the world, who spoke a different language, who lived in a different culture, and had different questions about their day-to-day life. Some may be shared with us, but they faced very different things, and Jesus was speaking to them specifically. So before we ask our questions— we have to do a little bit of homework to say, well, what questions or what situations or what did the idea of divorce, you know, what was uh, the issues that faced these early Jesus followers that he was speaking directly into? And once we kind of grasp that, then we draw out of that some application for ourselves. And so I had to do that homework. What are these early Jesus followers here when he said these words? What were some of the questions they had? I did my homework and it was actually quite humorous. In early rabbinic thought of the first century, um, 
Divorce can be justified on the absolute silliest of grounds. Here's just a couple examples of what some of the rabbis put out that people, you know, presumably they kept to in these early days. It was the idea of a, what they called a no-fault divorce. It was basically, you could say, I just don't want to be married. It's like, me neither. It's like, is there a reason? Nah. All right, well, fine. And that was enough. Or some sort of physical impediment, which is, you know, my wife's grandfather, for example. He, he had his, uh, he was doing some kind of work and I think in his basement I don't know how it happened he had a different story depending on the day when he asked but his finger got cut off he had a little nub and he would freak my children out when he was you know like ah you know he was missing his finger um you know if, if this if that took place in the first century and the finger was gone his wife was like I don't like how you look with your finger missing I'm just gonna move on she could right and that's these laws are set up but then this one is actually really funny if your wife spoiled your dinner that's actually written down from these early rabbis, right? She burns her dinner. You're like, that's the last burnt dinner. I'm walking out. I'm done. This is real. Like, I'm not making this stuff up. This was real, okay? It shows you how loose that this early culture did in Israel, how they viewed marriage. And Jesus, if you understand that, what he's saying is actually incredibly more conservative. He's saying, look, guys, you got to take this a little more seriously here, right? You got you to tighten, you got to rein this in a bit, guys. You got to stop with this. This is actually, marriage is a serious matter. This, this means something here. And you have to stop finding reasons to leave and find more reasons to be together. It's actually more loving for Jesus to tighten the reins up here because if you're a woman in this time period and you were divorced, um, it was very hard for you to find a way of, uh, of life. It was a very male-centric society without being married to a man. For you to find work or employment or food, it would be really hard for you. And Jesus, all the commentators agree, was actually communicating a loving word to the women of the day. He said, we, we need to take care of one another to consider at its core the other is so important that you're going to fight to keep this together even if your dinner got burnt last night, Right? But, you know, all joking aside, I get this is a sensitive topic. There is, I, I guarantee you, nobody in this room is unaffected by this topic of divorce, whether personally, whether in your family or friends. Myself and my, you know, and my siblings and, and friends when I was a child, we've all experienced uh, someone, either ourselves or someone very close to us through the horrors of divorce. If I am honest, though, and I tried to go through the laundry list of questions you have for Jesus, we could be here for an hour. And, but guaranteed that I, I do want to unpack this more in the future, but suffice to say, the condensed version of this, I want to keep it as condensed as I reasonably can. And just to understand the heart of what Jesus was saying, he was asking his early followers to consider what marriage would look like with a much more serious approach than many had in his day. And he is once again in the context of the sermon, aiming at the heart, aiming at the motives, aiming at the intentions. And we should hear his words as driven right down to the core. Let your love for your spouse be greater than your love of self. Something like this is probably what his early followers would hear. And we have to move on. Like I said, one day we will dive deeper. If you have those questions more about this, please write them down. I don't, not that I have answers. I would love to engage those questions with you because you probably have many. 
And I hope this is, I'm not trying to cop out here. I just, there's, there's a lot of text to move on to. But I would love to engage you if you have more questions on that topic. I want to move on to the next part. Again, Jesus is aiming for the heart. He is writing the law and printing it on our hearts. He is calling all throughout the thread of this whole sermon to deny self and to consider God and others as more important. With that kind of what we can call our hermeneutic, our approach to the scriptures here in mind, let's tackle this next topic of oath. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head. You cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no, and anything else comes from evil. So again, what is the core? Don't get lost in the minutia. What is the core of what Jesus is saying? He's saying, why take oaths? Because at times we must feel that we have to, because a simple yes or no is not enough, because you probably blew it one day, right? You blew the trust one day when you said you would do something and didn't, and the people around you knew it, and now you say, no, 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 all right. For real this time. Like, I, I, I promise. I, I, I swear this time I'm, I'm for real. All right? Because sometime in the past you probably screwed up and you may have actually maybe even intentionally lied. Lying often covers your wrongdoing in order that you can avoid whatever consequence that may come from it. The idea of not being honest, it places you at the center of everything. And now when we think that we really, you know, mean something because of our previous history of contradicting our own words, we now feel the pressure of having to take that oath. The idea here, the idea here, if we stay in tune with the law and having the spirit to be written on, the law written on our hearts, uh, refusing to treat the law like a rule to obey or a hammer to knock us down, but rather a heart-level, deep-forming ideal that shapes our deepest motivations and feelings within an orientation of a life shaped by love of God and love of others. That is a summary of the law. And Jesus is saying, get rid of that disconnect, guys, between your words and your actions. Truthfulness in the inner being, as the Psalms talks about it, is actually a symptom of inner wholeness in the Spirit. That you hold the glory of God is more important that it would just exude through your own reputation and your own self even more important than your own reputation. And we will see more of that at the end of our time today. This is not a moral slapping of the hand saying, stop lying, would you just stop it? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, why are you not honest? Are you really just continually placing yourself at the forefront of your life? Why can't you just say yes and then be truthful, right? Is it possible that you are living more of a concern in defense of self rather than God and others? And this is just one more stepping stone in our sermon today as we talk about the ultimate aim of the final image, the wholeness, right, the completeness in Christ, a dying the self and a living for God and others. Then Jesus hump, uh, jumps to the next topic, which is retaliation. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him, the other also. 
And if anyone must sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. What this is not saying is if you're in a parking lot and a homeless person walks up and says, give me your keys to your car, you say, well, I can't deny, I can't say no to anything, so here's the keys. Like, that's not what this is saying, okay? Um, We have to ask once again the question, what's the heart behind what he's talking about? What is the heart behind this? With taking the law and writing on our hearts, we realize that this, this is a little more difficult. I want to be honest. The whole pattern here is Jesus quoting Old Testament scripture. We talked about this last week. With the authority of his divinity being the son of God, and he, he teaches not as Moses who received the law. He is teaching as if he is the lawgiver, a claim to his divinity being God. He quotes an Old Testament verse that we find in 21 different places, not just written once. It's about 21 different locations, this idea of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And he says, but I say to you, don't do that. (laughs) Now, usually when we read the Bible, that's not how we interpret it. The Bible says this, okay, I'm not going to do that, right? That's not really how we do this. So you read this, you're like, well, Jesus, this is a little difficult. This is an interesting way to teach, right? And of course, there's loaded opinions as to what he exactly was doing. But the question for us this morning, I'm not sitting in a Bible class to go to those nuances. This is a sermon. We're talking about we need to be transformed to the image of Christ. What is the heart behind why he said what he said, right? Aside from the loaded questions we may have that, again, would be enjoyable to dive through, um, there's many hints in this passage that Um, As the law addressed ancient Israel on a kind of societal government level, that for his disciples, for his people, the church, and Jesus' followers, and even in the Old Testament, for his people Israel, there were different opportunities in our day-to-day, week-to-week relationships that we are, um, uh, 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 that society is not afforded, that we are given. And this is what I mean. Proverbs 20, 22 says this. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord. He will deliver you. Proverbs 24, 29. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will will pay back the man for what he has done. Do not say that, it said, right? Paul takes this line of thinking and uh, in this kingdom way of life, and he says in Romans chapter 12, he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, quoting scripture once again, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the heart of what is going on here is, I think I can address it this way. Where are you in that equation when you get smacked here, right? What role do you have in that equation, right? When Jesus said, turn the other cheek also. Let's go back to our orientation question. What is, where is our life ultimately oriented to? God and others, and no longer yourself. 
It's when it comes to being frauded or being hurt by someone else or theft. Do all you can to say, I entrust the judgment to God. He will repay if this person doesn't seek forgiveness. Know your own life story as for your own sins. What has God given you? He's washed away your sins. He has cleansed you from your unrighteousness. And you know the grace you've received. And the question becomes, are you willing to extend such undeserved grace to those who are even trying to smack you around at the workplace or, you know, metaphorically speaking, they're being awful to you and they fraud you. And you say, you know what? God will repay. I'm going to bend down. I'm going to wash their feet. All this is dependent on this theological reality. Justice must be done, and we know that, and Jesus will return to enact that justice upon this earth and to cleanse it of unrighteousness. But in his grace, he has left this long season of 2,000 years, as Peter talks about. He's, he's not lazy or, you know, giving up here. He's delaying because of grace, because he wants to see more people come to know him. And we are given this opportunity, even against nature and even against society, to say, I'm not going to seek revenge. I'm going to get down with my towel. You know, when I, I graduated from, from Moody Bible Institute and I walked the stage in front of Moody Church, a beautiful place in downtown Chicago, and you know what they gave me? They kind of had the diploma. They're like, hey, there's a diploma. No, no, no. You know what's more important? Here's a towel. I'm going to give you this towel. You know why? Because this should define you and your ministry. This will define the piece of paper. You can just, it, you can lie it on fire. It doesn't actually, you know what really matters is this towel. Are you going to go down and serve even those who don't deserve it? Because that's what Jesus did. Did he not? This is what he's pointing us to. Christians, when you're sinned against, you feel that deep urge to retaliate or to sue or to go after them and harm them. I get it. Some circumstances actually cause for these things. This is not a, a command to say never do those things. I get it. But as far as it's possible, consider how it could be avoided and you could take advantage of the opportunity to not just tell but show the good news of Jesus to them. Remember that Christ, he was silent before his accusers. I don't think this is softness. You may hear this and say, well, this sounds a little soft, right? This is America. We need to stand up and we need to fight, right? America idolizes strength. It idolizes toughness and power over and against others. And I truly believe that, that we've, be, we've become so far that we look at our, so our, our either political leaders or institutional leaders and we see some big, tough, loud person. We're like, yes, that's how it should be. And Jesus is like, actually, I, I don't think so. True strength is much more difficult. It's easy to be a jerk to somebody else because it feels good to you. What's more difficult is to go down and to serve and to love them. That is the way of grace, which is much more hard and I think much more tough when I see a man or a woman doing that kind of work, because I know that is from the Spirit of God, and that is born from prayer, and that is born from great resistance to say, Lord, keep me from defending myself or just making this about me right now. I want to consider that person that needs to know you. How can I make this an opportunity to share with them the gospel? That is true spiritual strength. So, one last word on this topic. Christians, I have seen Christians towards one another be the most vicious. Maybe you have too, unfortunately. 
right? And you know exactly what I'm talking about. You think of situations and you're like, I've seen the worst behavior I've seen in retaliation things are between Christians, which is such an awful testimony to have, right? But we've all seen it. We know we're all fallen people. It happens. I understand. But Emmanuel, to the best we can in this room, in these four walls, in this church family, may it not be. Jesus said that they will know us by our love for one another. If we are to practice this, let's begin with the brothers and sisters in this room. And let that be a, a lamp, a, a shining bright light of the gospel to the society around. And they see our love for one another and they say, I, I want that. That's unusual. And we have to move on. Verse 43. In a similar topic, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same, the ones who made a living off of professionally frauding people, essentially? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? There's a story of, of um, a group of Oxford scholars around the 1940s who were meeting and having this big philosophical conversation. What makes, you know, uh, Christianity different from all the world religions? And they couldn't come up with anything. They were going back and forth. and like, ah, I mean, they're kind of all the same, right? And of course, in walks C.S. Lewis. And they say, ah, Lewis. We're stuck here, and, you know, we need a, your, you know, your counsel here. What makes Christianity distinct from all world religions? And he goes, oh, that's easy. It's grace. And silence is the result. Grace and love has marked every single instance we've discussed so far. In our divorce passage, Jesus called for love and grace to be found in his disciples to not abandon their spouses over silly, selfish issues. He guided them to honesty and truth-telling, we talked about that as every lie affects everyone around you and can wreak havoc and destruction among them. He chose them to choose non-resistance against those who slap you and to even in grace turn the other cheek rather than swing at their own. But now he gets even deeper, goes to such deep levels of grace that he calls us to love our own enemies. God, in fact, causes the weather to bring rain and sun on both the just and the unjust, implying that he doesn't have to be kind to the unjust. They are actually worthy of something else. Yet he is kind towards them, and we are called to do the same. Can there be a more meaningful calling and difficult calling for Christians today who live in a nation in the world that literally is feeding off of turning us against one another? The more we're turned against one another, the more news articles can be written, and then more clicks and more profits, because everybody wants to see two people fighting or two groups of people fighting. We all know that we live in this, this day today, right? Where even a simple agreement on some political matter is not just a disagreement, but it's like, you're the enemy, and I'm against you. And that's, this is the national discourse that's happening. Christians, we are called to rise above this and aim for a deeper maturity in Christ, a deeper and more gracious way of life 
of loving God and loving others, the cleansing of your own sins, the receiving of such grace that we have from God calls us to unleash it upon others, even in the most unreasonable of circumstances. This commandment to love your enemies, there's nothing to benefit from. I want you to see this. You get nothing out of this. In fact, it may actually go opposite. It may bring you harm, right? There's nothing in this for you. This is very countercultural. It's like, you know, going into England and driving the wrong side of the road and then continuing to do that in America. What's going to happen? You, you'll, you're going to come to some collisions here, right? Because you're bucking up against the natural order of things. When we see those signs that talk of a sale that's too good to be true, right, we know instinctively that it probably is too good to be true, that somebody is trying to walk all over you. And this is what we just know that people are always trying to take advantage of us. But the only benefit in loving our enemies and giving them such undeserved grace is this. And Jesus implied it a little bit, right? There are rewards for you in the, in the age to come, but now joy is offered to us. And this doesn't make sense in our American context, and it's why Jesus is still also radical all of these centuries later. This is a radical calling, right? Listen to this. Romans 5, 6 through 8 said, while we were still weak, this is how we do this. This is our motivation. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, while you were an enemy of God, that is when Christ died for you. So can we who are the recipients of such grace, then look at those who are against us and say, you, you don't deserve this, but I didn't deserve what I got either. And I'm going to give you Jesus. We're going to end here in verse 48. I could preach for two more hours. Are you guys ready for that? I'm just kidding. Whew. Verse 48, you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Most of your translations may say perfect. That's a little bit of an unfortunate translation. If, you know, when we think of perfection, usually because we're so religious and moralistic, we think, oh boy, so I have to like do everything perfectly? It's obviously impossible, Jesus. Now I feel really guilty for doing all the bad things, and I gotta, that's not really what's going on. The Greek word is teleos. The idea, I'm gonna go back to the puzzle analogy, okay? The idea is kind of like the completion of everything, the ultimate aim of everything when it ends. Here's the conclusion. Here's the the end point of everything that's going on. That puzzle box, that image, that's the end point. That's what that Greek word is referring to. The final aim of the wholeness that we have in Christ, of your life, which is ultimately as image bearers of God who were saved by the blood of Jesus, filled with the Spirit, is ultimately found in God himself. I'll return to this question of what is the aim of your life? If all of those puzzle pieces of our actions, your thoughts and your motivations and your intentions and living were laid out before you in the form of those puzzle pieces and we locked them all together, what image would result? We talked about navigating all these tricky situations in our life this morning. And we're still at the end of our time here confronted with the big picture, which is God himself. If in your life, if you get all those pieces and put them together, would you see the image of God rise? 
Jesus gives us the reference point for this, and it is God. He says multiple times, especially in the Gospel of John, things like the Father and I are one, and everything I do pleases the Father, and, and so many other ways, right? Because Jesus was claiming to be the true human being who truly was in the image of God, the true image bearer of God, just as God desired from us from the very beginning. And the glory of God shines all around us when we love our spouse more than us and refuse to allow silly daily aspects of communication to derail our marriage. The glory of God shines about us when we, by the help of His Spirit, stay true to honesty and truth-telling, even if it means our reputation is diminished. The glory of God shines about us when in us and we would rather be defrauded if only it means we take the opportunity to unleash undeserved grace and love on someone who certainly does not deserve it, just like you and I receive from God. In loving our enemies, we are showing the truth of our own salvation, that while we were sinners, God loved us. In the psalm, if we can state this in one sentence, to be whole in Christ, as this word perfect is referring to, to have the law written on our hearts means you got to die to yourself daily. You have to live alone for the glory of God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. When all these very human scenarios in our lives are placed together in Christ, however imperfectly we in the Spirit live them out, the image of God appears on that puzzle box. And this is when, as we close, that is when, friends, we are filled with God. That is when we start tapping into deep spiritual power. That begins when we start, we actually are then sharing in Jesus' life. And that is an abundant life. It's a free life from the chains of self, a life of dying to self daily and living into the power of God. Paul actually calls us to be a living sacrifice. And as we end this morning, I want to read that. It says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. If there is renewal to come and a, any kind of revolution to come that is needed in this nation, I want it to come right there, that you and I are living as true sacrifices unto God, setting our egos aside, setting our reputations aside, and allowing, as 2 Corinthians 5 says, the love of Christ to control us. And so as we uh, appeal to this world to know Jesus and to be reconciled to him, may our lives exude that in it. And I want to call the worship team up right now, um, and I want to pray for us as we uh, close our time of sermon here. Lord, um, we know we are sinners. We know we can't do things perfectly. I don't think you even expected us to, right? But you, you understand the, the, the realities of our human existence and our frailty. But Jesus, you gave us your spirit because we needed the helper. And Lord, you know this world is broken and it's hurting and there's, there's so many complexities and just problems in this world that we, as your image bearers, are called to be agents of reconciliation. So Lord, in all these situations, if you and the Spirit has been working on somebody's heart in this room and somebody knows that they need to go and just love somebody instead of retaliating or whatever the situation may be, Spirit, surface that into their hearts right now. Maybe respond May your spirit fill us that we may, may go and rectify that, Lord, in your spirit. Lord, I want Emmanuel to be full of you. I want your spirit to fill us. I want us to be so enamored with you that we just kind of forget about ourselves and this whole human life we have in you become our all in all. And it is spread to all of our neighbors and to one another. 
So Jesus, thank you for these words. They're, they're difficult. They're hard. And we still have a thousand questions. But Lord, thank you that you are with us and you told us you would never forsake us. And it's your name we pray. Amen.